would like to extend a uh, real sense of gratitude to um, the Berry Center for inviting me up. This is, it's really great to, to get to come here. I was telling Rudy, can, can you hear all right yeah. without a microphone? So I was, t- I was telling Rudy, the last time, I, I mean, I come to New York periodically. Everybody has to. Um, <laughs> uh, last time I was here was 1983, which is shocking to think about. Yeah, I, I was interviewing for internship. At, at Columbia, it, it, it ended up being my second choice behind Temple. But I, I remember taking a city bus up from wherever, wherever sort of low-rent place I was staying. And of course, I had my interview suit on, my one nice tie. And the bus came up towards Columbia and then headed east. So all of a sudden, I see the hospital vanishing in the back window of the bus. And I pulled it, you know, yanked on the chain, and the guy stopped. And then, so now I'm... 12 blocks from the hospital and, and two minutes to get there. So I run in to meet the chairman of medicine, sort of soaked through my, uh, my interview suit. So they're amusing memories of Columbia, not entirely uh, fun. So uh, I'm going to talk about the, some of the stuff that our group does on GLP-1. Um, I, it just happened, I was a first-year fellow when the first paper on GLP-1 stimulating insulin secretion in humans came out. And I had a very um, foresightful mentor, John Ensink, who tossed the paper on my desk and said, you know, you should work on this. I think it's going to turn out to be important. And he was, he was right. Or, um, and it has been an important uh, sort of bringing back the, an old area of physiology, the Incredin effect. And so our group has been for a while now trying to figure out you know, the, the actual mechanisms of the incredent effect and how GLP-1 acts. And it's one of these stories that the further we dig into it, the more confused, uh, or at least the more options we open up. So that at the end of this thing, some of you, the realists in the audience, will say, that guy just prattled on for 45 minutes about GLP-1, and I'm no closer to understanding how it works than I was at the beginning. And you'll be partially right, but I will try to make it uh, sort of interesting as we go through there. So this is what I hope to talk about today. I'm going to talk about the incredent effect and the conventional mechanism of incredent action, and then I'm going to talk about how there's problems with this model when you consider GLP-1 and present some alternative mechanisms uh, for GLP-1 action and, and some new stuff that we think gives insight into this, and then uh, give you a conclusion at the end. So the Incredent story probably starts at the, 100 years ago, but the, the real story um, started to merge after Burson and Yalo published the radioaminoassay, and people could start to measure insulin in the circulation. And a number of groups made uh, the following observation. That is, if they compared insulin secretion after oral glucose or IV glucose, in this case, they put the glucose in a jejunal tube or gave it IV, and they gave it the same amount. But what they saw was that insulin secretion was much greater when glucose came through the gut. And this is done a number of ways, number of labs, um, but striking finding every time. And the, the, you know, the strong implication here is that the gut must elicit some factors that promote insulin secretion. And again, this had been inferred by physiologists for a long time uh, as to why glucose regulation with an OGT seems to be so much tighter and, and rep, more reproducible than with, with IV glucose. And so this launched a search for incretins. Incretin is a, 
a term uh, coined by Le Barre in about 1929. It means a factor that stimulates internal secretions, in this case, insulin, as opposed to stimulating external secretions, pancreatic exocrine enzymes. But incretin means a factor that stimulates insulin, a factor from the gut that stimulates insulin secretion. So in 1970, uh, Brown and Pedersen took kilograms of pig intestine and ground them up in the methods of the day and passed them through all these uh, columns and used a bioassay to eventually come up with a factor that looked like an incretin. It stimulated insulin secretion. Um, uh, They could find it in discrete cells in the gut, developed an assay, could measure it in the plasma, went up after meals. And they called this uh, glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, GIP. And GIP was the first incretin. Ten years later, uh, science had advanced to the point where you didn't need kilograms of of pig's intestine. What you could do, actually, was uh, clone genes. And two groups cloned the proglucagon gene, looking for the classic alpha cell product. And what they found was that downstream of the um, uh, glucagon sequence were two sequences that were similar, about 50% homology. And in the um, rigid but often unimaginative way that people name things, they, these sequences were called glucagon-like peptides. There's a glucagon-like peptide 1 and glucagon-like peptide 2. I'm not going to talk about glucagon-like peptide 2 anymore, although it's very interesting. But GLP-1, it turned out, uh, was a very potent insulin secretagogue. In fact, of all the gut hormones, probably the most potent. And uh, subsequent studies showed that GLP-1 was the second incretin. And it's just a schematic of a gut endocrine cell. Um, These are, uh, in the yellow, are just sort of workaday enterocytes that bring in nutrients and do the work of the the absorptive work of the small intestine. And then scattered every, oh, 500 or 1,000 enterocytes is an endocrine cell. And we we know they're endocrine cells because they have secretory granules. Uh, There's probably about 19 different endocrine cell types. The type that makes GLP-1 is called an L-cell. And L-cells respond either to luminal, luminal signals, signals from adjacent enterocytes, or maybe even neural signals, to uh, unload their secretory granules into the submucosal space where they can be picked up either by capillaries or by enteric lymph. And this is how we think the gut endocrine system works. Um, this is a, uh, these are some rat uh, intestine uh, stained for GLP-1 cells. This is a, what we call the mountaintop view. That is, if the villa come off the wall, we section like this. And you can see now we're looking down uh, the villi, and these are the, this is the single layer of enterocytes here. This core is where the capillaries, lymphatics, and nerves are. And you can see here, scattered around in green, these are GLP-1 cells. You can see the nucleus. It looks not unlike that schematic I showed you. This is a fingertip cut, so we cut down the villus. You can see much the same thing. Here's the enterocytes. Here's the GLP-1 cell. Here's the core of the villus, uh, theoretically where all the signaling takes place, either um, uh, by secretion or potentially uh, neural mechanisms. So if GLP-1 is an incretin, and incretins stimulate insulin secretion after meals, then GLP-1 ought to be released after meals, and indeed it is. Uh, this is from Jens Holst's group. It's replicative of about 300 such studies where healthy volunteers have incretins measured and then they eat. And then you measure it, you see that there's a rise in the blood. And these are 
um, uh, the response uh, in, to a small breakfast and a large breakfast. You can see the GIP, the same thing. And in fact, there is a dose response, a proportional response of the incretins to a meal. The more you eat, the more incretins you secrete. Um, I think of the incretin system as a feed-forward mechanism. There's no evidence that there's a link back from insulin secretion. But essentially, when we eat and the blood sugar goes up, in healthy people, even 10 milligrams percent, the beta cell becomes active. And it is now secreting insulin and uh, uh, prone to other stimuli. What the incretins do is adjust the gain on the active beta cell, such that the insulin response is appropriate for the amount of nutrients that are going to come in. And it's a very nice system, and it's why healthy people actually have a peak in their insulin secretion before their blood sugar even rises to its peak. And it's why the blood sugar is about the same no matter how much carbohydrate you ingest. Um, and so this is a very nice system uh, of regulation, controlling, uh, matching internal functions with uh, what's coming in from the external environment. Well, for incretins, they're, they're small peptide hormones. Small peptide hormones work through specific receptors, and there is a GLP and a GIP receptor, and these are um, unique to the, to the ligand that they bind. That is, GIP doesn't talk to this receptor, and GLP doesn't talk to the GIP receptor. These are in a bigger family of receptors, the secret and glucagon uh, family B of G-protein-coupled receptors, and they work... Uh, through a common mechanism. In fact, it's very difficult to find clear differences in the second messengers from these two incretins, kind of raising the point of why this redundancy. Uh, that's something I won't shed any light on today. Um, these receptors were cloned from islet cells. If incretins stimulate insulin secretion, that would be the logical place to look for them. Um, but the GLP receptors expressed other places, and that's been a lot of the sort of interesting discovery in this area. So now we know that the GLP receptor seems to be expressed on the heart, uh, both in mice and humans, and on endothelial cells in various vascular beds. So there is an emerging biology of GLP-1 uh, in the cardiovascular regulatory field, and I think this is going to be really important. It's curious to me that there have actually been some studies in humans that show potential benefits of GLP-1 in the setting of cardiac ischemia and heart failure. Um, and, you know, these were published eight years ago and nobody's really taken off. I mean, my cynical view is that the cardiologists are so busy now printing money that they have no time to do basic discovery, but uh, we'll see how that plays out. The GLP receptor is also expressed in the brain, discrete nuclei, and in the peripheral nervous system, and I'll talk about that. And then it's expressed widely in the GI tract, although, ironically, this is where we know very little about GLP-1 function. So there have been a number of studies, uh, loss of function studies, that demonstrate conclusively that GLP-1 is a physiologic incretin, that it's necessary for normal glucose tolerance. And I'll walk you through that. So this is a, a knockout mouse made by Dan Drucker and colleagues at the University of Toronto in 96. And I think at last count, we have a postdoc who keeps tabs on this. This mouse has been in 436 publications, so very productive animal. Um, but when you knock out the GLP-1 receptor, in this case, homologous recombination, it's a developmental knockout, animals are glucose intolerant. These are wild-type animals and GLP knockouts uh, given a glucose load, and you can see that these guys don't regulate their glucose. 
normally. There, there are peptide antagonists to the GLP-1 receptor that you can give to animals or to humans. Um, and in fact, when you give healthy humans, these are British medical students studied by Bloom and colleagues, British medical students always in the vanguard, the first to get whatever peptide they want. Um, and you can see that when you block the GLP-1 receptor, these, these healthy young people become glucose intolerant. The difficulty in a study like this is it's hard to measure, it's hard to demonstrate that this is because insulin secretion is impaired because this difference in glucose is enough to drive insulin secretion and so it's, it's sort of hard to sort out um, the contribution of GLP-1 to the beta cell function in these guys. Um, it turns out that subsequently we've learned that GLP-1 actually has a portfolio, a range of effects that tend to regulate blood sugar. So that there's stimulation of the beta cell to make insulin. There's also inhibition of alpha cells, suppression of glucagon secretion. Uh, and this um, uh, coordinate regulation of the islet tends to promote uh, glucose tolerance. GLP-1 delays gastric emptying, probably not by affecting the stomach, but through neural mechanisms. And slowing the passage of nutrient chyme from the stomach to the intestine will certainly blunt the rise of blood sugar. In high doses, at least, GLP-1 induces satiety, and I would argue that if you put your fork down faster, your glucose regulation is going to end up being a little bit better. Um, there's now a couple of papers. Um, we did a study a long time ago. Um, uh, uh, Farinini's group just, just did a similar study uh, that shows that GLP-1 has islet-independent effects to suppress hepatic glucose production. And we think this is also neurally mediated uh, based on some animal work. And then finally, this is the least established of these broad range of effects, is that there's some notion that GLP-1 might actually dry, help drive glucose into cells. So, you know, this looks like a pretty good profile for a drug target. And in fact, we know now that this is a very good drug target, and probably the biggest development in diabetes therapeutics in the last 10 years has been uh, the advent and the use of GLP receptor agonists and DPP-4 inhibitors that take advantage of these mechanisms to various degrees. So we were interested in how GL what the contribution of GLP-1 was to insulin secretion during, say, a GTT. You can't tell that if you just do block them during the GTT. So my colleague Marzi Salehi did the following study. She raised blood sugar with an uh, intravenous infusion, so a glucose clamp, and she clamped these healthy subjects at about 160 milligrams per cent, right where you, you'd think you'd peak after an OGT or maybe a little higher. And in this way, she was able to generate glycemia-stimulated, hyperglycemia-stimulated insulin secretion. After the clamp was steady, she had these subjects drink glucose, right? So now you're getting glucose in IV and orally. Um, she kept the glucose clamp so the glycemic stimulus doesn't change, but when the oral glucose you get secretion of incretin. So GLP and GIP go up. And this allows us to measure the incretin effect, right? This is glucose stimulated and glucose plus incretin, and by subtraction, you can get the incretin effect. And then we repeated these studies, once with saline and once with the GLP receptor antagonist, to try and tease apart what the GLP contribution was. And this is the glucose in the glucose clamp. You have to give them a lot of blood sugar to come up. You get this steady state. And then when they drink, you have to turn the glucose off, and then gradually it comes back on, suggesting that there's insulin secretion. And indeed, that's what happens. So uh, the glucose alone stimulates insulin secretion about fourfold from baseline. 
But, but you can see with, at a fixed glucose, as soon as you eat, you invoke all these factors that are really potent in regulating insulin secretion. And now insulin is about 20-fold above baseline. So you get this huge, and this is the Incretin effect. This is that phenomenon I showed you in the first slide. Well, it turns out if you, if you infuse Extendin 9 and block GLP receptors, you really uh, put a big hole in insulin secretion. And it turned out in our group of about 10 healthy volunteers, this accounted for 30 or 40 percent of, of post-OGT insulin secretion. And our, our bet is that if we had a, could do a similar study with a GIP antagonist, we could knock down another 30 and that there'd be another little, you know, 20 or 30 percent that may be neurally regulated independent of the increment. Those last two are speculations. So the other interesting thing in this study was, you know, when you do a GT, an oral glucose tolerance test, usually glucagon sort of goes down. There's a suppression. It's not as strong as with an IV GTT, but this is the controlled glucagon levels. And you can see after the glucose, there's a tendency for them to go down. In fact, when you block GLP-1, the, level, the basal levels go up. We expected that because we'd seen that in animal studies. But they act, there's actually now this positive secretion of glucagon during an OGT, suggesting that GLP has this important role to dampen the alpha cell uh, during the postprandial phase. And this, this obviously would also contribute to insulin secretion. So the studies I've shown you so far, the description of the incretin effect, fit with what I call the conventional model of GLP-1 action, an endocrine model, whereby GLP-1 is secreted from L cells in the gut collected in the submucosal space, uh, where it's sort of consolidated in the portal vein, it burbles through the hepatic sinusoids in the liver, out into the central venous system, through the lungs, back to the arterial circulation, and then out to target <coughs> tissues like the beta cell, where it can interact with GLP-1 receptors on it and stimulate insulin secretion or theoretically inhibit glucagon release. And this is the model I grew up with. This is a model that's still widely uh, promoted um, Turns out this is a useful model for selling GLP-1 drugs, and so that there um, has tended to be a lot of information uh, published and distributed in slide form to, to promote that. Uh, those of us that work in the field, though, have been troubled by this model for a long time. Um, there are certain aspects of the GLP-1 system that really don't fit a purely endocrine action for GLP-1 uh, on the island, and I'll, I'll show you this. So one, it's secreted in relatively low levels, and the dynamic range is small. There's rapid intravascular metabolism. Um, uh, the effects are apparent even when plasma levels are low, and th this is very confusing, but I can show you some data on that. And then the receptor is not present on all the appropriate tissues. For example, when we did our study uh, to, to clamp the islet and show that GLP-1 suppressed hepatic function, we had a hell of a time getting it published because the summer before, a couple of groups had come out and said GLP-1 receptors are unequivocally not expressed on the liver. And so people said, told us over and over again, this effect on HGP has got to be some kind of artifact of your method because GLP doesn't affect the liver cells. Well, uh, probably it doesn't affect them directly, but, but it's not to say that it doesn't have actions that are indirect. So... I've shown you this data already once before. This is incretin secretion after meals. Uh, what I've done is replot it so that GIP and GLP are on the same y-axis, expressed them both in picomolar. And this is the dirty little secret for all of us who measure GLP-1 and make these postprandial curves, is that you always really have a truncated y-axis because it turns out it doesn't move very much. 
So this is GIP that acts like a proper hormone. You have 10, mil, 10 millimolar, 10 picomolar basils that increase 10, 15 fold. This is a kind of dynamic range we think of for endocrine signaling, a big change um, in, in plasma concentrations. This is GLP-1 on the same axis. It barely doubles, right? Just sort of limps up there a little bit, and the plasma levels don't have a big dynamic range. This is even more pronounced if you measure the intact GLP-1. <clears throat> Well, it turns out that GLP-1 is also rapidly metabolized. Dipeptidopeptidase 4 is an ectoenzyme. It's expressed by capillary endothelial cells. And it probably plays a role in global amino acid protein catabolism and, and recovery. Um, but it turns out that it's very avid for peptides that have a particular sequence, a particular signature. And GLP-1 is its favorite target. And DPP-4 knocks two amino acids off the intact GLP molecule to give you this metabolite. Most of what we measure in the circulation, in fact, is this metabolite. Because this process is very fast. Uh, it's intravascular. The half-life of intact GLP-1 in a human is a minute or two minutes, very short. Um, and it turns out that DPP-4 is really uh, enriched in the liver and the lung. And again, I described the course that GLP would have to go from the gut to the pancreas. And in fact, it has to traverse both the liver and the lung to get there. Um, and hepatic clearance is, is very significant. So that there's some question as to how much GLP-1 actually even reaches the arterial <laughs> circulation. Uh, Holst's group uh, did this study in pigs where they were sampling across uh, various organ beds. And they, they noted that there was significant metabolism of GLP-1 from the intact to the metabolite, even before it got to the portal vein, and by the time it got through uh, uh, the liver, about 95% of the GLP had been cleaved by DPP-4. Again, a, uh, an almost overwhelming gauntlet that GLP would have to run uh, to get to the, the beta cells that are its proposed target. Well, so the question then comes up, well, maybe this metabolite is important. Um, maybe this is, maybe that's where the action is. It's, it's very similar. It's not like the peptide gets chewed to bits. It just loses two amino acids. Um, a colleague of mine, Torsten Fall, who ironically uh, is now an interventional cardiology fellow at this university, learning the secrets again of how to print money, <coughs> uh, which probably explains why he's no longer a GLPologist, because we don't print money. Um, but he did the following study. He gave either saline, intact GLP-1, or the metabolite to healthy volunteers during an IV glucose tolerance test. You can see here the insulin secretion more than doubled with the intact peptide, but the metabolite had no effect on beta cell function, had no effect on glucose disappearance, no effect on insulin sensitivity, had no effect we could discern at all with any of the parameters of glucose metabolism that we usually measure. And so I think it's not likely that 9 to 36 is, is that important in glucose regulation. Well, good. Um, there are GLP knockout mice. I introduced the Drucker mouse. And I would tell you that when you compare the GIP receptor knockout from the GLP receptor with the GLP receptor knockout, um, you get this, this dichotomy again. So if you take a GIP receptor knockout mouse and you do an intraperitoneal glucose tolerance test, squirt glucose into the little mouse's belly, um, you don't change incretin secretion because that, that glucose just gets into the circulation. It's like an IV glucose tolerance <coughs> test. It doesn't come through the gut, doesn't activate the enteroendocrine cells. 
And in these knockouts, IP glucose tolerance is the same in the wild type and the knockout. It's only when you feed the animals, induce GIP secretion, in fact, improve glucose tolerance in the wild types, but not in the knockouts, that you see the, the, the phenotype of the knockout come up. And this, again, is consistent with a hormonal action. I would argue that GIP is a proper hormone. It does the things that hormones do. Um, and in this, this difference between IP and oral glucose tolerance exemplifies that. The GLP receptor is not the same. So you can give a GLP receptor knockout either IP glucose or oral glucose. In both cases, they have glucose intolerance. But in this study, you're getting glucose intolerance at a time when GLP in the circulation is at a very low level, essentially basal. And this, again, suggests that it's not GLP that's released into the circulation that's critical for glucose regulation. Um, again, we did a, another study using our, our clamp and, uh, and meal to measure the incretin effect and, and then to allow us to test <laughs> GLP-9 to 39 to block it. And we got, this was a study we did in diabetic, type 2 diabetic subjects, just to show that the GLP response was still present, even in these people with bad beta cells. And this is data from the controls, the middle-aged, overweight controls for that study. And this was the observation we made here that sort of blew our minds. So you can see here, this is insulin secretion after hyperglycemia plus incretin release. And of course, we block it with GLP-1. <clears throat> but look at this. There seems to be a difference here, too, in the 60 to 90 minute period before they ate, right? So at this point, the GLP levels were at a, at a place where our assay wouldn't even detect them. And yet, we were getting a difference. It's blown up here. So here's basal insulin. Here's the response to the glucose clamp, sort of climbing up there. And, when we, and we can block this with extended 9. So we're now blocking IV-only uh, insulin secretion with a GLP-1 antagonist at a time when GLP-1 levels are very low. And the difference, 30%, was the same as this. So it's a 30% difference with and without secreted uh, GLP-1. And we've, we've seen this in other uh, cohorts as well. And this is very perplexing. Why does the, what is the antagonist blocking uh, if the circulating levels are low and unchanging? Again, sort of throws a monkey wrench in the notion that this is an incident factor. Well, some people would argue that basal levels are, might be important. Maybe that two or three picomolar of GLP-1 that's floating around has some effect on insulin secretion. So again, we tried to get, get at that as well. <coughs> We raised blood sugar very modestly in some healthy people with a clamp, and then gave this staircase of GLP-1, essentially trying to build a dose response every 30 minutes or so. And we measured then GLP-1 levels here in black, and you can see these are the basal levels, and with each step of the infusion, we get a little increment in GLP-1. But plasma insulin didn't change. This is hyperglycemia-stimulated insulin screen doesn't change until the GLP-1 levels are three, four times basal before now the insulin secretion goes up. And what I can tell you is out here it gets exponential. But the point is that the basal levels, that really low circulating levels, don't seem to do a hell of a lot. Again, getting around that notion that the, our extendant effect is, is uh, blocking basal GLP-1 secretion. So if the endocrine model doesn't work, and I, I mean... I give this talk a lot, but I, I always talk myself into the endocrine model being not great by the end of it. I mean, it's time I sort of rediscover my thesis. Um, but what are the alternatives? If, it's, if it doesn't work that way, how does it work? Well, 
people in the field have, have really linked, latched onto neural mechanisms, that GLP-1 is actually not so much an endocrine factor, but a neuroendocrine factor, that it, that it activates um, uh, peripheral and central neurons that then mediate a lot of these effects on glucose metabolism. And I'll show you one study we did. So it turns out that the abdominal viscera are served by sensory neurons um, who have their cell bodies in the nodose ganglia. Nodose ganglia, just right outside the base of the brain in humans, there's about 12,000 neurons on each side. But these neurons um, have axons that go down to the viscera, and these are the way that visceral sensation is mediated. And these, these project to all sorts of organs, the heart and lungs, the stomach, the intestine, um, the portal vein. The, the liver actually doesn't get a lot of sensory innervation, but the portal vein is densely innervated. Um, again, Torsten Ball, the guy that's in the cath lab slinging catheters this morning, um, did this study. He figured out how to get the nodose ganglia out of a rat, which is no mean feat, but he isolated RNA. And he found that the, that the nodose ganglia expressed a lot of GLP-1 receptors. Other people have found this too. But what was interesting to us was the density was kind of com comparable to what we saw in the islet. Here again, the liver being a true negative PCR um, certainly doesn't seem to be expressed. And, and what Torsen did then was section uh, portal vein and do immunostaining. So this is uh, looking at the uh, uh, portal vein like you're looking uh, down a uh, cannoli without the cream in it. And here's the lumen, right? And here's the uh, wall. And then this is stained for synaptophysin, which is a good marker of, of neural processes because it, it stains uh, synaptic vesicles. And you can see uh, that, that the, uh, there's a lot of uh, neural processes in the wall of the portal vein. It's actually dramatic on high power if you compare portal vein with hepatic artery, which has a little bit of sympathetic nerves in it. But there's a dense lattice work of, of neural processes. He then put a, uh, an antibody to the GLP-1 receptor on there and found that there was a lot of double staining. That is, that the bouton in the um, uh, neural processes uh, in the portal vein had GLP-1 receptors in them. And this suggested, this is the neuroanatomic substrate um, uh, for neural signaling in the portal vein. And the portal vein would be a great place to mediate GLP-1 action because that's the, the, the vascular bed where the plasma levels are highest. You could integrate with other nutrients, which is what you'd want to do in incredent signaling. And a couple of groups had shown that if you put GLP-1 in the portal vein, you increased vagal firing. So there was some suggestion that this might work. So Torsten did the following study. He put a jugular catheter in some rats, and in other rats he gave a portal catheter. And he gave a dose of Exendin-9, the antagonist to the GLP-1 receptor, that was insufficient to, to block glucose tolerance when given systemically. He did a dose response and found a low dose. And you can see here when he does an intragastric glucose tolerance test with rats getting either Exendin 9 or vehicle in the jugular vein, that is in the systemic circulation, the glucose tolerance was identical. Yet when he blocks the GLP-1 receptor selectively in the portal vein, now he gets this 30, 40% rise in glucose, suggesting that GLP-1 signaling in the portal vein is one way, one place where its actions are mediated. And, you know, while he was doing these studies in rats, uh, Richard Bergman's group was doing similar work in dogs to suggest that this visceral neural loop is actually 
uh, operative and is one way to explain GLP-1 signal. Well, it turns out that the same neurons that, that go to the portal vein go to the intestine as well. And I showed you that in the intestine, in the middle of the villi, are these neural networks. And in fact, this is from Joel Elmquist's group, and it shows a, an intestinal villi. And this is a reporter that's a fluorescent protein expressed by visceral neurons. And you can see these nerves coursing through the middle of the villus. And on a higher power, you see that they're kind of dense. And here's a GLP-1 cell in the mucosa. And here's um, the neuron. So theoretically, the neuron is, is in apposition and would be a way that you could get the same kind of neural, visceral neural signaling we saw in the portal vein. Now, this has been devilishly hard to study. That is, how you can administer GLP-1 to the villi without, in a controlled setting, has been something we've been struggling with over a few years. So I, I can't give you the kind of data I, we can give for the portal vein. But I think if you talk to people in the field, this is sort of a place where people are putting down some chips. This is a, uh, a place where there's some enthusiasm that this might be the physiologic mechanism of GLP-1 action. That is... If G, this is the place in the body where GLP-1 concentrations would be the highest. And although there is DPP-4 in the gut, um, the ratio of metabolite to intact peptide is probably highest right here. So this is the model. Holst, Jens Holst, who's a Danish physiologist and surgeon, who's sort of one of the fundamental uh, contributors, one of the leaders in the GLP-1 field, has proposed this model and has been out there with it for 10 years. But again, his notion is that GLP-1 secreted into the submucosa activates these visceral neurons with their cell bodies in the nodos, connect in the hindbrain, and then you get these reflex loops. And this explains a lot of GLP-1 effect, right? The gastric emptying effect, which is uh, sensitive to vagotomy, uh, you can't, GLP-1 won't suppress gastric emptying if, you, if an animal has a big autumn. The satiety effects seem to be mediated in the hindbrain. The alpha cell effects are probably neurally mediated because the GLP receptor is not expressed on alpha cells. And even the beta cells. So this is a, uh, a nice working model, although uh, a tough nut to crack, I will tell you. So the question we've been wondering as we've been talking about is GLP-1 an endocrine factor or not is, are the beta cell GLP-1 receptors necessary to mediate effects on glucose tolerance? I mean, that, that would be the, the sort of a dispositive way to get at the question. If you could knock out the GLP-1 receptor from beta cells and look and see what happens. And it turns out this is a uh, tractable question. Uh, my colleague Randy Seeley uh, convinced our dean a few years ago that if he invested a little bit of money in some mice, we would be able to turn that into grants down the road and got him on a Sunday morning when he was feeling high-spirited, and he agreed. Uh, and so we made some mice, uh, one of which was uh, an animal that had LOX-P sites flanking the sixth and seventh exons of the GLP-1 receptor. This is, the, this is the part of the receptor that Drucker knocked out in his uh, uh, global knockout. And theoretically, then, after a Cree is applied, you lose this part. Here's the seven membranes of the GLP-1 receptor, and in white here is the part that gets knocked out. And this extracellular loop is really important for interaction of the ligand with the extracellular domain. So we thought this was a good area to do it. When we crossed this flocks animal with an animal that expressed Cree everywhere, through a CMV promoter, you can see that the wild types have a, a band here from this PCR 
whereas the knockouts have this small band. And it's a nice knockout. And when we looked at places in the body where there would be GLP-1 receptors, uh, say the uh, nucleus of the solitary tract in the hindbrain, the knockouts had none, the wild types had some, the hypothalamus similarly, the ileum similarly. You can see here glucose tolerance was impaired in the global knockouts compared to wild types. When you gave the wild types uh, a GLP agonist, you flatten the glucose tolerance. These guys don't respond at all. Likewise, the wild types suppress food intake with a GLP agonist. The knockouts, not at all. So the flox is good, seems to work, seems to take away GLP-1 action. So now let's just get it out of the beta cell. Um, and that was going to be a trick because the usual beta cell Cree's, the RIP Cree, rad insulin promoter Cree, um, is expressed also in the hypothalamus, so it's not entirely specific. And the PDX Cree is expressed in uh, pancreas and, and upper gut. And so about this time, Lou Philipson and his colleagues made a Cree at Chicago, a mouse insulin promoter Cree with a longer promoter segment that didn't get expressed in the hypothalamus. Uh, it's, it's linked to a mutant estrogen receptor to make it an inducible Cree. So you, the animal can has the Cree uh, anchored to its plasma membrane until you treat with tamoxifen, and then it's translocated to the nucleus where it can do its business. And so we got the MIP Cree because that sounded like the way to get at this question. So these are RIP Cree, MIP Cree with tamoxifen, and MIP Cree without. This is a double reporter animal that constitutively expresses red fluorescent protein until you knock that out and then it expresses green fluorescent protein. So these are pancreas sections. Here's the exocrine tissue expressing the red fluorescent protein. Here's an islet that's devoid of signal uh, in the two active crees. The RIP cree activates the green fluorescent protein, but not in the exocrine tissue. The MIP cree with tamoxifen does the same, but without tamoxifen doesn't. So it seems to work in a reporter construct. These are PCRs of tissues from GLP knockouts. The NTS and nosos and the islets are from the global knockout, and again, you can see the wild type band and the knockout band. In our rip free animals, you see the knockout band and some wild type band, and you see the same in the mip with vehicle and tamoxifen. Actually, these are mixed up, because this should be the tamoxifen where you get the knockout. And so we weren't clear if we were getting mixed populations of cells. So we took some islets, digested them further, separated them by facts, into beta cells and non-beta cells, and did the PCR again. And here you can see, in the tamoxifen-treated group, the beta cells have virtually no wild type band. So it looks like a pretty robust knockout. Looks like it's pretty specific to the beta cell. So this was all exciting, and so then we did some studies, and these were not um, uh, what we predicted. So again, if GLP-1 uh, is an incretin, particularly if it's an incretin hormone, um, you should see a major effect on oral glucose tolerance. And in fact, um, in our global knockouts, we saw impaired oral glucose tolerance. But in both of the beta cell specific knockouts, we could see no difference. There was no effect of losing the beta cell GLP-1 receptor on how an animal regulated glucose after a glucose divide. And we've done this too numerous to count times because I didn't believe the result and I made the student go back and do it again and then then, then we got a postdoc to help the student and then, then we all went down there and this is what we always see now the, the confusing thing is that when we give IP glucose the global knockout effect is still there so you can see these guys have bad glucose tolerance when you give it IP again a time when the GLP in the blood is really low 
and the rip crease the same, and then this is the knockout. So that the big effect of taking the GLP receptor out of the beta cell isn't on the increment effect, it's on insulin secretion in response to glucose. Not too inconsistent with some of our human data. Now, again, this is another one of the many experiments where the beta cell knockouts don't have abnormal glucose tolerance. Here they have uh, very abnormal IP glucose tolerance. The top bar is the, the knockouts, and then the black here is the wild types. We gave the black ones GLP-1, and again, we flatten out their glucose tolerance. In fact, the beta cell knockouts improved a little bit when we gave them GLP-1. Um, they didn't flatten out, but we got some effect. And this happened whether we gave, this happened when we gave the GLP-1 IP, but not IV. And you can see here, this is insulin secretion during the OGTs. No difference whether we have the, the inducible knockout or the vehicle. Uh, but with IP glucose, you can see that the vehicle treated get a nice response to GLP-1, whether it's given IP or IV, and the knockouts don't. Again, the knockout is there. The beta cells don't respond to GLP-1. Um, but the, uh, there are some other GLP-1 receptors that aren't in the beta cell that seem to mediate some effects on, on uh, uh, glucose tolerance. And this, again, becomes apparent. We thought, well, geez, it, the oral glucose tolerance is not abnormal. Here is the knockouts and here are the vehicles, and these are very similar. But if you give the GLP-1 antagonist, you can make these guys abnormal, just like British medical students. But it turns out the beta cell knockouts also get abnormal. Again, suggesting that the beta cell receptor is not mediating most of the, the effect, and that it's some other receptor population that's involved. So, you know, this is going to be tricky to write into a paper, since it's always easier to write when your hypotheses are confirmed rather than shattered. Um, but normal oral glucose tolerance uh, does not depend on a beta cell GLP-1 receptor, at least in mice. But you need that receptor to respond to a glucose load to secrete insulin in response to glucose by itself. So how do you rectify those two? Well, my, my simple explanation is when you get glucose through the gut, a lot of stuff goes on. Glucose goes up, but GIP goes up, and neurofactors go up, a bunch of things that potentially could compensate for the absence of GLP-1 signaling. Um, with an IPGTT, what you get is hyperglycemia. And if the beta cell response is at all impaired, you see the, uh, the, the effect of the knockout. That is our working hypothesis for now. The beta cell knockouts have an absent insulin response to GIP, and non-beta cell receptors seem to contribute to glucose tolerance. So the beta cell GLP-1 receptors are not the whole story. We sort of thought that going in, but this... Uh, set of data really confirms that. And so I talked about neuromechanisms. What about paracrine mechanisms? And this is actually the thing I'm most interested in now. So the textbooks say that alpha cells make glucagon and L cells in the gut make GLP-1 and there's no crossover because alpha cells have PC-2 and L cells have PC-1-3 and specific and that's just the way it is. And you can find old papers that suggest that and this gets passed on. And of course, that's, it's never that way in biology. It's never, ever, or, or either, or. When, when Don Steiner's group knocks out PC2 from alpha cells, you see that there's PC1 activity in there and you see that the proglucagon gets cleaved to GLP1. And these are studies from Bernboim and colleagues at Tufts and they show that they can stain GLP1 in the islets of mice um, we can extract intact 7 to 36 from rats, islets, um, so that there, there is 
a pretty good now emerging literature that the alpha cell makes GLP-1. And this would be a good place to put GLP-1 <coughs> if you want to regulate insulin secretion, right next to the beta cells. So DPP-4 doesn't matter. Dynamic range in the plasma doesn't matter. All the action could be right here in the islet. And that's a tantalizing hypothesis. So I'm going to show you some data that, that is make, not conclusive, but makes me think this might be happening. So we know that bariatric surgery is one way that you can really increase the dynamic range in GLP-1. So these are patients that had a gastric bypass, and they have humongous GLP-1 levels, usually tenfold uh, over what the controls have. Um, and this is a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, which is another bariatric procedure, and, and gives you much the same thing. So the question is, do these high plasma levels have an impact? Um, this is a study Marcy Salehi did a couple years ago. Again, clamp with a meal so that you get IV and IV plus incretin-stimulated insulin secretion with and without extending 9. In this study, we had to use a small meal because these bypass patients didn't take a big meal. So the GLP effect in the controls looks really small. It's only about 15%. But look at the effect in the gastric bypass. For one thing, they have this huge insulin response to meal ingestion, and that's well known. But when you block GLP-1, you just knock the bottom out of it. It's, it becomes really a big effect. So that the 15% GLP effect in a healthy person is 50% in a bariatric surgical patient. So, you know, this would be one instance where I say, well, maybe GLP-1 does act as a hormone in this circumstance. So... We have had a, uh, put some effort into studying bariatric surgery, and we have animal models. So these are uh, mice that have a vertical sleeve gastrectomy or a sham operation, or they're pair-fed to the BSGs. This is pair-feeding done by an endocrine group, uh, imperfect. Uh, that, that's all I can say about it. Uh, it's not our stock of trade. But these are the shams. Here's the weight loss in the BSGs. Pretty nice. Um, and here's the glucose tolerance, which is really impressive. So the shams and the pear feds have comparable IP glucose tolerance, and the sleep gastrectomies have this terrific improvement in, in glucose tolerance. So this is, this is interesting to think about. We don't know how this happens, and these are questions we're asking. Well, what if you do a vertical sleeve in the guys without the beta cell GLP-1 receptor? Does it matter? Well, it turns out it does. So here's VSG in a vehicle-treated animal. So the Knockout is not activated. Here's the shams in black. And then here's the guys with the beta cell knockout. You lose the effect of the VSG when you don't have beta cell GLP-1 receptors. So all of a sudden, here's a place where the beta cell GLP-1 receptor seems to matter. Um, and not only does it take away IP glucose tolerance, but now you see an oral glucose tolerance phenotype 2 for the first time. Well, so these were really, again, tempting. We went along with our human data. We were busily measuring plasma levels of GLP-1. Then we looked at the islets a little bit. So in these animals, in a VSG animal, uh, there's a significant increase in insulin secretion. Uh, the basal levels are low, and you get a much bigger fold increase, whether you study it in vivo or in culture. These are islets uh, studied, islets removed from VSG animals and studied in culture. So there's a beta cell effect. The insulin secretion is better. We just happen to take islets from these studies and extract them and measure peptides. And so the insulin content in the VSG and the, and the sham animals was virtually identical. But when you did a VSG, the content of GLP in the islet went up fourfold. So that there was this big, you know, when we normalized it for protein or for insulin, 
this big difference in the <coughs> local concentration of intact GLP-1. Again, in our view, suggesting that this paracrine mechanism that, that I raised may be operative. Now, we don't have much beyond that, but this is something we're going to be very interested in tracking down. So I want to talk quickly about the brain GLP-1 receptor because I think that's important in glucose metabolism as well. So there is a very well-defined brain GLP-1 system. There are neurons in the nucleus of the solitary tract that make GLP-1. It's one of the primary peptide neurotransmitters in that nucleus. That's the only place in the brain it's made. So if you're an endocrinologist, this is handy because then you don't have to learn all those other brain areas that they're always teasing me about at lab meetings. But, uh, so this is the, where all the GLP-1 comes. And again, I would point out that the NTS is where visceral signals come in from the gut. <laughs> the GLP-1 receptor is widely dispersed in the brain, including the uh, uh, amygdala, the PVN, and other hypothalamic um, uh, nuclei. And over the years, we've done a variety of studies putting GLP-1 in particular neurons and measuring out. Outcomes. So if you put GLP-1 in the brainstem or the PVN, you suppress food intake. Uh, and you don't make animals sick, they just they look like they're, they're sated. If you put GLP-1 in the, nucle- in the amygdala, they get an aversion. They act sick. Um, but they actually, their food intake effect is not as impressive as these guys. If you put it in the arcuate nucleus, you suppress hepatic glucose production, have no effect on food intake. And then you can put GLP-1 in a number of these regions, and activate the HPA axis. So it seems that the GLP receptor uh, distribution um, is critical for the effects that we see with GLP-1. Well, we wondered if it it could regulate insulin secretion and glucose tolerance. So my colleague Lena Yesen did the following study. She did a glucose clamp in rats uh, with or without Extendin 9, the GLP-1 antagonist, delivered into the third ventricle. And you can see here the glucose levels were raised from a basal of about 90 uh, to about 225. And when you block GLP-1 with extended 9, you suppress uh, insulin secretion. What I didn't show you is you also raise glucagon secretion. So the, the effects that we see with peripheral GLP-1 on islet regulation hold for central GLP-1 as well. She then went on and trained some animals to eat Ensure um, so that you know, she'd fast them overnight, give them five mils of Ensure, they'd walk over, drink the five mils in a few minutes. And that way we could do a voluntary, unstressed, full neuromonte glucose tolerance test in these animals. And here's with extended 9 and here's without. And you can see that there's a significant impairment when you block GLP-1 in the brain during an oral glucose tolerance test, suggesting that we could add glucose regulation up to this um, uh, brain portfolio of effects. So that when you put together a more integrated system of GLP-1 action, I think you have to account for Visceral neural signaling, such as we demonstrated in the portal vein, such as may occur in the gut. Um, brain activi- activity. We don't know how the NTS GLP cells are regulated, but they seem to be important in glucose metabolism as well as other things. And I can't tell you there's not some direct hormonal effects. We haven't absolutely ruled that out. Um, and I think in some settings, say treatment with GLP-1 agonists, injections of drugs that get to very high levels in the con- in the circulation and are metabolized, you may have endocrine effects. So what I would wrap up by saying is that GLP-1 is essential for normal glucose tolerance. It's a proven drug target. It's been effective for developing diabetes drugs. That you must consider alternatives to the endocrine model of GLP-1 action. It's not a simple system. 
It looks like it's going to be multi-layered at best, and how, this, how the various signaling pathways interact, I think, is going to be critical. And I think the nervous system and islet paracrine regulation ha have to be considered uh, as, as alternatives. Now, what are the implications for clinical medicine of, of, of this summary of data? Well, um, I would argue that we still don't know how DPP-4 inhibitors work. Right? The, 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 again, what comes in the glossy brochures is this little rise in active GLP-1, but it's a little rise. And, and, and in my view, probably not that important. So how, where is D, the DPP-4 inhibitor protecting GLP-1? Well, I would argue that the submucosa of the gut or the islet would be good targets. That may be where these drugs are having their effects. And it may be why they work not only in the postprandial state, but in the fasting state. Um, Local activation of GLP-1 receptors in the gut, perhaps, uh, may be a way to deliver more GLP-1 with less side effects. That is, it may improve the uh, therapeutic window for GLP-based signaling, and I think this has to be considered. And then finally, if you're talking about uh, enteric signaling or even splanchnic signaling as being where the action is, nutraceutical or device interventions that, that enrich GLP-1 action in those beds might be ways, again, to amplify the therapeutic signal without side effects. So I think I probably talked too much. Yeah, uh, it's just supposed to be a shorter talk, but I'll, I'll take any questions that you have. Thanks, Dave. I'll start off. Yeah. So uh, three, four years ago, there was a paper by Caicedo talking about the innervation of islets in rats, mice, and humans. And he showed that the innervation of islets, while in rats and mice, are, is very rich. In humans, it was much less so, and the innervation was mostly to the smooth muscle, suggesting that uh, central effects were mediating changes in blood flow. So how do you reconcile that observation? Well, I'd, I'd take that on two ways. One, I mean, GLP-1, as I showed, has receptors on vasculature. And so... You know, if you're going to if you buy into that model where it's a vascular regulation of the islet that's most important, GLP-1 could act that way. The other thing I was confused about when I saw that paper, and it I mean it was hard to argue with the paper. It was nice histology, nice immunocytochemistry, but there's a long literature on things like cephalic insulin secretion in humans, and you know so I think the phenomenon of neurally regulated insulin secretion is is unequivocal. I mean I think. It, not disputable. So, so there must be something to account for. I would be open to it being vascular. And, and, you know, oftentimes it's these new twists on things that end up being important. I mean, so vascular, metab uh, vascular mediation of insulin sensitivity also in the muscle has gotten some attention. Um, so to me, that's not the end of the story, but it's another twist <coughs> on an interesting page. Spinnable. Spinnable. I just spun it. Yeah, well, so I have a theory why it's said that they don't cause hypoglycemia because, you know, it, it, the, the, there's pretty good physiology to suggest that in the absence, at basal glucose, the incretins have a much muted effect to stimulate insulin and, and suppress glucagon. 
so that the difference in a in a healthy human of the effect of GLP-1 with the blood sugar at 85 and 95 is enormous. Um, but there's there's studies. If you look, they're not usually they're usually in the other journals um, where if you give enough GLP-1, you can induce insulin secretion. And so it's not it's not a pure effect. The so-called glucose dependence of incretins on the beta cell is not a pure effect, but it's a dose response effect. And so I would be open to the fact that, that some people uh, would get hypoglycemia. Now, if you go into the literature and you look at the old trials on metformin, which also doesn't cause hypoglycemia, you find small differences, but they're real and consistent across the board, that if, if you take metformin versus non-metformin-treated people, there's a little bit of hypoglycemia. So I think in diabetic patients, the, the, there's, all, there's very few drugs that are non-hypoglycemic. Nonetheless, metformin is not an insulin secretagogue, whereas I think you could say that at least part of the action of the incretin mimetics and the DPP-4s is as a secretagogue. And so in that, in that light, the fact that they don't cause a lot of hypoglycemia is, is interesting and consistent with the physiology. There, there, is a, there is an islet signaling channel ion mechanism that's been described for a couple of, in a couple of studies as to why GLP-1 needs closure of the KATP channel, etc., to have its effect. And I've, I've memorized that several times, like the steroid biosynthetic pathways and things like that, and, then, and I readily forget it. So I can't tell you exactly why the incretins are, are glucose dependent. But I think the clinical data is not that different from what we would expect. But I think it would be wrong to say these drugs never cause hypoglycemia, just a decreased risk. So there's some off-label use, um, some of the GLP-1-receptor agonists in type 1 patients who certainly have a clinical response, which the blood can maybe, I think we often attribute to delayed gastric emptying, but it seems to be broader than that. I'm wondering if there's added well, models. Of yeah, I, I actually there's a really, there's a, <laughs> a study from the mid-90s by Werner Kreutzfeldt. I think it was Werner Kreutzfeldt's last first first author study, and he, they gave uh, infusions of GLP-1 to type 1 diabetic patients and dropped fasting glucose from about 220 to 150 and had a big decrease in glucagon. And so that was their conclusion was that this might be useful in an insulinopenic patient because even though alpha cells are dysregulated in type 1 diabetes, they did seem to respond to the GLP-1. And the, the more recent studies using liraglutide in a type 1 groups have su supported the same thing. Um, it was interesting to me last summer at the meetings, if you went to the diabetes therapeutic sort of uh, uh, ask questions of the STARS sessions, that, that all the, the hotshot diabetologists were, the last word in diabetes was, well, in type 1 is if the pump doesn't work and you can't get them to count carbs and stuff, give them a little araglutide, that'll probably take the edge off. And so so I, I, I think it's a case where there's a little bit of therapeutic adventurism here. Uh, people just assuming that this would be useful. I can also tell you there's good clinical trials ongoing, and that will be the answer. To me, when people ask me this question, I say the biggest mistake would be thinking that you could substitute a GLP-1 for insulin, because that would be malpractice, and everybody would be in trouble then. Sharon? Uh, thank you for a wonderful talk. The, the, the paraffin effects are particularly intriguing, especially when you, you saw GLP-1 go up in the islands. In the islands. Did you, was proglucagon message, did that go up, or do you think this is a processing effect relative to the amount of glucagon to... to yeah, so, so we have a list of 
of gene products that we need to analyze in those, in those RNA samples that we just haven't. That's pretty fresh data. But that was one of the things that we were very interested in was what, because it is whole islet extract and we ought to be able to see what the pro-glucagon message is. Um, so we'll, we'll, that's certainly something that we're really interested in looking if at. If you stain those cells and look by immunohistochemistry, chemistry, which cell has the increment in it? Have you we haven't done that, but again, what we have are we just figured out how to do this faxing. Actually, Children's Hospital at Cincinnati has a really great fax core, and all we do is send over our digested islets and set the you get you play around with it, gate it, and you can get pure beta cells. So we'll be able to look at these things specifically in beta cell, non-beta cell populations. So I'm actually really anxious to do that. That's a new trick for us. In your conditional knockout uh, modeling beta cells, when in the postprandial you don't see a change in the absence of GL2 receptor in beta cell, could that be because GIP is still doing the effect, so it's counteracting GL2? Yeah. No, that was that. When you, sorry, when you take out the, in the obesity surgery, what you are taking out is the GIP secreting cells, and that's why you see then the effect. That's a great hypothesis. I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. I hadn't thought of the... Now, what I would tell you is our bariatric model is a VSG, and we're not taking out the GIP cells, but I still think it's a cool hypothesis. Um, what I would tell you, though, is that there are studies... If you study... If you take a GIP receptor knockout and you give them GLP-1, they are more sensitive to GLP-1 than the wildcats, and vice versa. That is, if you take a GLP knockout, they are more sensitive to GIP than the wild type. So that there does seem to be some compensation, one increment in for the other. And that, again, fits with our early interpretation of those negative OGT data, um, that, that the GIP effect is, is amped up. Now again, those studies were done in global knockouts, animals that never had a GLP receptor. And these animals live, you know, most of their life with a GLP-1 receptor. We studied them a month after they got tamoxifen. But, but it's, it, I can't tell you that doesn't happen. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much.